The funny thing about being in the middle of nowhere is that if you pull back 30,000 feet, you'll realize that you're probably somewhere. This is my conversation with Beata Shillette. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. I'm here today with the Beata Shillette, a growth architect at Shillette Enterprises, one of PeopleHum's top 100 global thought leaders, and uh, one of the 50 must-follow women entrepreneurs by Hearst. So I'm very excited to have her on today, and there's a range of topics I want to cover. But let's start at the beginning, Beate. Let's start with how you came to be a growth architect. <laughs> so the, 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 the term growth architect comes from my love for systems. And when we talk to business owners, entrepreneurs, podcasters, coaches, consultants, when I say system, probably 80% want to already run away and escape to an island to <laughs> never have to hear the terms of strategy and systems again. But for me, it is a the idea that I've been doing this for a while and I've built you know lots and lots and lots of business models. And I always look at what is different in how somebody presents what they do so that I will go, wait, what did you just say? That sounded really interesting. And most times people don't you know, have a hard time explaining what they do in simple terms or they say it in a way that it sounds like everybody else. And then there is no, no, it's not interesting. And so the growth architect came from the idea that if I had a blueprint, which I do, and I gave you the blueprint to build the house, we still have a house and you still can furnish it any way you want. You can put whatever color on the wall. You can put whatever. You, you can go goth. You can go modern. You can go tradition. You can do whatever you want. But you do need a blueprint to build a house. And so that's how I decided that my brand was going to be around growth architecture, being the growth architect to help people to grow their authority, and scale their impact following a blueprint. Now, going back a little bit, you started all of this from a, a, a perspective of, of not necessarily having a, a blueprint or a, or a knowledge of how <laughs> you were going to get to where you wanted to go. How did you know? Um, How did you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was it was absolute chaos. So my story is that you have to imagine that I was a single mom. I was $135,000 in debt. I made a lot of really excellent mistakes, and I found myself in, in a pickle. How do I, as a single mom, as an immigrant, with this much debt, how do I figure out my way out of, out of the mess I got myself in? And it was not just my mess. Really, I had come through a decade of bad luck, Hirsch. So all this stuff that happens to other people, that happened to me. I'm the one who had the employee that came up with the idea for her own business, which was my business just without me, with my key vendor, no less, and the lawsuit. I'm the one who lost a business on September 11th. I'm the one who lost my key vendor in a tsunami. I mean, you can't make this up. Right? This is just crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And fires, yeah. floods, riots, earthquakes. I mean, it just kept coming over 10 years. And there comes a point where you say, am I going to drown in a puddle or am I going to drown in the ocean? At least I'm going to make it worthwhile, right? I'm going to at least drown in the ocean. Right. And that's when I went to Germany to drum up some more business. My father has a stroke, Hirsch, but he did not have a stroke. My father had pancreatic cancer, and he died only six weeks later. And now my best friend is gone. While I'm at the funeral, my phone rings. Since my office in Los Angeles, we were served a notice. After all of this, while I'm not even there, at the grave of my dad, now I'm losing my house. Mm. 
I didn't own my house, but, you know, we were renting, but the sleazy landlord. I mean, it's just, again, stuff you can't so make let, up. Let, let me interrupt you for a second. Go ahead. And ask you, so at that moment, because because that we this seems sadly so relatable, not not just relatable, you know, because we all go through times that are challenging, but relatable because these days it seems like it's one thing after another. And some, some of it has to do with us and some of it isn't directly related to us, but it still, it still affects us and, 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 you know, hits us. So at that moment, what is your reaction when you get this, this news on top of your loss and on top of everything that's that's happening. What was that initial feeling? That's a good hook you're adding here because the thought is really WTF or um, what now, right? I mean, so this is sort of the moment when somebody that's your biggest fan, your biggest supporter, your number one fan, the man that thought all of my ideas are great, which by the way, they're not, but he thought it nevertheless, Right. When when the, when that goes, it's like your worst case scenario just happened, and yeah. you go, okay, is 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 that, dear God, is that it? I mean, are we now are we now are we now done? What happened in that moment is, you know, and I'm I'm at the grave at this moment when this happens. I mean, literally, we just literally put my dad in the ground. And I'm I'm waiting, you know, everybody's leaving. I'm still there. I'm saying goodbye. I'm leaving back to Los Angeles. And that's when the phone rang. I fell to my knees. I raised my fist and I yelled at God. And I said, if you have an idea, this would be an excellent moment to fill me in. Because you go, WTF, what, what's going on here? What did I ever do to deserve this? And I think this is what you're referring to, the relatable part of this story. It's like, what did I do to deserve this on top of this, on top of this, on top of this, and when will it ever end? And I think what happens is that the moment when you are in this darkness or you're just so surrounded by darkness. And I mean, we, we're looking at people who have lost loved ones post-pandemic, you know, that are lost their businesses, that lost their jobs. They had to change everything in their lives upside down. People have gone through massive changes. You go, I, I, I can only surrender. Uh-huh. So you surrender yeah. and you say, because I've, I've done everything I could. I've, I've showed up every day. You know, I wiped off the tears. I, I, I kept my back straight. I fought my way through it. But this is now beyond, this is now beyond what, what I can do. You know, I'm, I'm already in debt. This, is, this isn't going nowhere good. So, so you surrender and you say, I have no plan. Take over. Because I, 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 I don't know what's going to happen next. And so what happens next? Well, so I went back to Los Angeles and not long after, you know, and I'm in the middle of figuring out how to find a new office on money I don't have. And I mean, it's just a mess. I get a letter from the White House because I did, in my desperation, write a letter to the president of the United States. This is sometimes how crazy these stories are. And I wrote the letter, Hirsch, because my ex-mother-in-law would not be quiet about this. You got to write the uh, president of the United States. He's your president who, if anybody can help you, it's the president of the United States. Have you written a letter yeah. to the president? I'm like, fine, <laughs> fine, fine, fine. I'm writing the damn letter, okay? So just we don't have to talk about it. I wrote a letter to the White House. I get a letter from the White House. I almost fell off my chair. I mean, who gets a letter from the White House? And... It says the president is delighted to hear from you and sends you his best wishes. I'm like, seriously? Of course, right, the president right. of the United States never saw this letter. But what it did do, it put me in touch with the Small Business Administration, the office here in Los Angeles, in, with the deputy chief director, not with some underling, but with a top doc because it came from the White House. So I walk right. in. I had written my business plan. I was ready to go. 
And then he says, I'm going to put in what you put in. And for the first time in years now, I knew that I was going to be okay. Three months later, they, you know, I had signed the deal with the bank. They restructured my $135,000 in a fixed 10-year term loan. It freed up my line of credit. And three months later, we are break even. 18 months later, we are the world leader in our category. Wow. And you did have a plan. See, the, the, the thing is that it, you couldn't control what was going to happen to you and you couldn't control what was going on, but you, you could control your readiness for an opportunity, for an event, for, you know, okay, if this is my only chance, this is my only way to get to the White House is I wrote a letter and they, they send, at least they respond. And, you know, but I'm going to go in there with, with everything I have. I'm going to go in there ready. I'm not going to go in there and just wing it. I think this is a very critical point, and, and, and let's just point this out to your audience, Hirsch, because I think this is, this is what's often, often overlooked. Yes, it is true that a lot of times we don't have control over the circumstances of our lives, but we certainly have control over how we react to the circumstances of our lives. And so I could have sat on the couch I could have, you know, fallen into deep depression. I did have a nervous breakdown in all of this. Remember, I'm still a single mom. You know, I'm still trying to figure out how to make all of this happen. But I choose to be very disciplined about what I allowed myself to experience and to feel because I knew that if it was going to go down the self-pity road, that it was the beginning of the end. Right. And this was in the area of, of photography, correct? You studied photo design, that's that was your background. Your background was not business per se. Growth architecture certainly was not what what you were pursuing. So tell us a little bit about your interest in photography and the trajectory of that because I I have a lot of listeners I think who who bridge the gap between art and commerce who are artists themselves trying to be business people or are business people who know they have a certain bent for art artistry and they want to know are the two things mutually exclusive you know can you be an artist and be a business person can you you know with so many people leaning toward entrepreneurship is that possible so give us a little a little background on your on your love of photography and that that through line yeah good points so i became a photographer because i i felt that i i don't fit in necessarily into you know, the regular kind of secretary thing. And so when I did my aptitude test in Germany, I had said that I liked being outside. I liked, I wasn't afraid of heights and I didn't mind physical, you know, work like carrying things. And the aptitude test said I should have been a roofer. (laughs) 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 And uh, not that there's anything wrong with roofing. It was really not exactly the profession that I I had in mind for myself. And so I, the woman, you know, the aptitude career counselor, she says, well, why don't you become a secretary, which had nothing to do with anything I wanted to do. So I said, well, but I want to be a textile designer. She says, too many applicants, no jobs. I want to be a jewelry designer, too many applicants, no jobs. I want to be a photographer, too many applicants, no job. And I just looked at her and said, this sucks. (laughs) <laughs> it's like everything I wanted to be, she gave me the same answer and she wanted to push me into what she thought was a safe, safe job, which is that classic middle class thinking. So I became a photographer anyway. And what I realized is that the I was better at the business side behind creativity, interestingly enough. So the methodology or the how to organize and how to you know, maximize ideas was much easier for me than being, you know, behind the camera and taking the pictures because I realized to be somebody who has a style, you have to put the years in, in the craft to develop that particular style. And then you recognize that artists or creatives are really in a double whammy because not just do they have to be very good at their craft, they also have to be business people because if the craft by itself is developed and you don't have a business outlet, you are the best kept secret and then what? So my experience came then where I looked at 
how business operates, and I immediately saw the patterns. That's how the strategic thinking and the growth architecture came into place where I was like, well, that's easy. All you have to do is one, two, three, four, five. And everyone's like, how do you do that? I said, how can you not know how to do that? And so this is how I recognized that I had a skill set that other, people's don't, other people don't have. And I ended up as an editor for Elle magazine in Germany. And I was doing, you know, was working with the creatives and I was doing the systems at the magazine. And then I was a photographer representative. And again, I worked with creatives because I understand them, but did the business side of it. And then I was in photography production. Again, I worked with crazy, colorful, non-conforming, insane people, herding them all together to come up with one product, you know, running the business side of things. And that's how I ended up being the growth architect because I love this piece. And a lot of my clients today are very creative people that are very unique people that just can't land the plane because they have so many ideas that they don't know how do I talk about it clearly? How do I communicate this to somebody other than me actually understands it? Because in the head, it's, 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 it's the idea. So I built the systems around these ideas and help people land planes. Right. And I think landing the plane is a great, it's a great analogy because, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer and sometimes, you know, my wife will ask me about an idea or a friend will ask me about an idea. And as I'm explaining it to them, I feel like the biggest idiot in the world. I think it's just like the worst idea or I'm not, I'm like, I, I just, I can't, I can't explain it. I can't explain it to you verbally. I can send you the sheet. I can write it out. I can do all those things, but I can't, I just can't explain it over the phone or even sitting here at dinner until I get that right. And, and getting that right, I think is maybe the hardest part. So I think that there's a piece of that, that is, if you had the nuts and bolts clear in your mind, because some people are idea people, they're idea people, they're not detail people. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, path? see, so immediately, so, so this is what my brain does. So let's just, do, let's just humor the audience, right? Yeah. So what I would go, I, I would then say, okay, so, so what you're saying is that when you hear something in your brain immediately, you're putting words to something, but they're still swirling around and you can't land them yet, right? So what's, yeah. the, what's the process of that for you? And then you would say, well, that's really easy. Well, first I, you know, interview. So let's, so what is your process? So you first interview, you write things out, you whiteboard, you journal, you using your intuition, you go on a bike ride. What do you do? In my case, what I do is if I'm writing about somebody, which I, which I do quite frequently, I'm a brand storyteller by trade. So it's, it could be somebody's personal brand or it could be their their actual copywriting in their ads, or it could be their all of their all of their corporate, you know, manifesto, you know, anything public facing, right? So the first thing is to to talk to the person, talk to people, and get a sense of them and understand who they are. Then the, then the next part is to take all of the notes and all of the madness and all of the chicken scratch and all that stuff and start placing it into in putting the puzzle pieces together so that the words have melody to it and flows and it starts to feel uh, kind of lyrical, right? But if that's the same with an idea. I may have an idea in my head. Oh, you know what? We're going to do a show about it's going to be called Truth Tastes Funny. Well, the first thing that happened was I had the idea of the title, Truth Tastes Funny, and then I started to think about what does that mean? The truth tastes kind of weird, but we have to take it anyway. It's like our medicine. We have to figure out a way to make it digestible. But until I write it out in a paragraph, it doesn't really make any sense. It's just babble. Okay, so so then uh, your process is a lot of intuition. So you are collecting you you do your home, you do your homework you obviously take a look at what they are and then you use your intuition and then that becomes the product so how do you tell someone that that's your process right because when people call you they're going to go well we need 500 words on the website we need a tagline we need 
we need these things. We need five blog posts. So they are very tactical as they come to you, right? So they think that you just sit there and you just write it. They don't understand that there's a, a process, a creative process. And for those of you who can see this, hers is smiling. So, you know, that happens all the time. Because <laughs> they, they, yeah. they think they put a word count in. They say, well, what do you charge per word? Or what do you, right. what do you, you know, how, how much is that going to be? And then you go, it's like, well, well, ho- whoa, 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 whoa. You're not buying 500 words. You are yeah. buying a brand story. Oh, wait, but didn't you right. just tell me you were a writer? So you're not a writer. So you are, you are a storyteller. You are a brand storyteller, right? right? So, so you see how we already shifted that from you being a writer to a brand storyteller? Yes. Right. And how much value, how much more value that sounds like it has than just being a writer. Because a writer, I can go to Upwork and I find a writer and then they write me words and I pay for it and I'm done. But that's not you. No. Right. So that's what happens when you use a strategy or blueprint and you go and you say, wait. So he, writing is the vehicle, how you deliver. But that's not the result. But if you right. say, I'm a writer, they think that's the result. It's the brand story that's the result. And the right, brand story right. matters because it's the connection of the customer to the story that resonates that results in sales. Oh, that's right. They hire you because they want that story to resonate better because they already they know it's not working with the consumer so that that can create that connection that then leads to sales. But if you were to say, I'm just a writer, then that's just, that has not the same value. But if you say, I focus on brand storytelling that connects your message intimately with the prospect so they can become consumers. How much more powerful does that sound? Well, what's great about that, Beata, is that it's like that to that phrase, you know, doctor heal thyself. You can you can help others I know. but you can't, you know, so in a way and I think this must be the case across the board, is that Everywhere. is that is that everyone can can do what they do for somebody else, but they can't always take like you like you describe, go to thirty thousand feet and look at the whole system that they're a, a a center of. You know, we don't have the perspective to look at ourselves necessarily and see ourselves at the center of this system and then figure out how to make the system work. And that's kind of what you do. That is absolutely correct. And it's interesting that you say that because before I came on your show, I did have a call with my coach. And he said to me, you know, he says, it's not that I don't appreciate it. You were nervous. You were like, I'm going on with her shit a few minutes. I don't really know what to do. I'm a little bit scared. I'm a little intimidated. Of, of course, of course, all of yeah, all of the I above. Understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand. They all they all call their therapist before and after the interview. That's hilarious. That's just that's typical. Yes, and I and he said the same thing to me. He says, "Well, he says clearly, you're so in the weeds with what you do that you you overcomplicate." what you're doing for other people. And he did the same thing with me that I just did with you, where he just says, so what I'm hearing you say is, and, and you know, I do this for a living and I cannot do this for myself. So you're absolutely correct. I don't yeah. think it is possible for you to do this on your own because you don't see how effortless something is or how you operate in your thought process that takes so much awareness and so much self-development that's even beyond anything. I mean, everybody, you know, who is anybody has, has coaches and they know they need to pay for it because without that, you are stumbling in the dark looking for the light switch. But if somebody has a flashlight, no matter how tiny and can direct you, you'll find that, that that light switch much quicker. And that's the power of finding people that have done what you're trying to do before 
and they can give you the shortcuts because it's time or money. You pay either way. Oh, oh, for sure. And I think when you try to do it with friends and family and all of those things, it's almost like, and I go through this every day, I would rather talk to you first and go through this process first and then pitch it to my family the same way I would pitch it to, to Bill Gates, right? I would rather have everything figured out. And then if they have, you know, input, you know, it's, it's welcome. But to go, you know, within, within your personal circle for that stuff, just, just seems like it's, after all these years, it just seems like it's so silly. It's so silly because, the, because they're not in a position to really help you. No, and, and, you know? and honestly, there's a whole other mindset part of it that you need to be aware of. Their job is to keep you safe. And yeah. their job is to protect you, especially moms and dads. It's like, are you sure you want to go down that road? That sounds really um, dangerous. Has anybody else done that before? Why don't you get a full-time job? Wouldn't that be so much easier? I mean, look, you, you work these crazy hours. This is even worth it. Right. And so you get down in this whole rabbit hole of talking to people that have not chosen the path that you choose because they can't do it. So they yeah. cannot give you that kind of advice that you need to to be successful because they're doing the opposite of that. So if you want to hear, if you want to torture yourself and hear about all the things that can go wrong, by all means, talk to your mom and your dad. I should have learned that. I should have learned that from my first marriage because my my ex-wife would say, I would say, oh, well, how about this idea? And she would say, I don't care, whatever, as long as you don't get fired again. <laughs> Just don't get, don't get fired again. Char but, but that was a real charmer, I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, we all, we, 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 we what do you call it? Excellent, excellent mistakes. Yes, excellent we, mistakes. We make, mm -hmm. we make excellent mistakes, you know, and I want to talk at some point uh, a little bit of the women's code because I have three daughters so one of my daughters is from my, my first marriage. I have a daughter and, and two sons from my first marriage, and my wife and I have two daughters. So, uh, so I want to get into the, the woman's code a, li a little bit. But first, tell me about the, the five-star success plan and why, why you call it that and what, what sets it apart. Yeah, so the five-star success blueprint is a system that I've developed to help clients to understand where in their entrepreneurial uh, or business ownership journey that they really are. What happens is that we build businesses based up on what we know and what we love, and then we we kind of suck at certain things, and then we forget about others, and we only want to do the things that we really like to do. And subsequently, the business cannot grow because it's missing certain elements. So I created this as a diagnostic tool, so I can help business owners in 30 to 45 minutes, it takes me like no time at all, where I take them through a series of questions and then I can identify where the business is stuck or where they might have missed a step or where they are out of alignment. And the five star success blueprint, I'll, I'll just take the audience through it uh, very quickly so you kind of know what it is. In the first sure. step, it's about the offer. What is the offer? Why are you the one making the offer? Why should you be making the offer? Who is your client? What's the solution you offered? And why would anybody buy from you? So that's all about the differentiation factor, the language, making sure that you have this unique value proposition. We call it the unapologetic value proposition, clearly defined. Now, once you have that, we move to the second step, and that's the offer. The offer has to solve the problem we just figured out, right? If it doesn't solve the problem, you're not selling anything. Then you're creating offers for yourself. Once you have the offer, you build the systems. So the system has to support how the offer is made so that it can solve the problems for the particular clients. Then we go to the team, which is the step number four, because then you need the team that operates the system, that manages the offer, that then solves the problem. And then finally, the fifth one is you as a leader, because there comes a point where you step from business ownership into business leadership. So you can lead the people that manage the systems, that handle the offer that solves the problem. And so in the Five Soul Success Blueprint, it really is helping me and my clients to identify 
where, what is off, what do we need to fix? And then once it's back in alignment, people walk out, they close five, six figure deals, sometimes days later, which of course I have to say the disclaimer, results are not typical, but it does happen. Results may vary. The results may vary. You still have to do the work, but it is not uncommon in my world that when you have clarity about who you are, why anybody would buy from you, what you're selling, what problem that solves, how you're going to deliver this and who the people are that help you to do that, that your business is going to grow. You're going to grow your authority, scale your impact. My biggest hurdle has been the team part. I just chose those people poorly. And I, for example, I had a PR firm 10 years ago that was successful for a tiny little boutique firm with only a couple people. And when I, when I brought in all these other people, they, they seemed good on paper, but they, they all wanted to be comedians. And what, what happened was, I, and I had been a comedian, and they gravitated to me because of this wild creativity that they all longed for. And then we all ended up becoming comedians, which was, which was an excellent mistake. It was great for all of us personally, but the, the company went under. You know, no planes were landed in the time. I mean, we did. We we, we closed clients, and the but then everything, nothing, nothing clicked. Nobody, nobody wanted to do the things that they were hired to do, and in some cases, they were even honest about it. Well, I don't really want to be a, a CFO, but okay, but okay, we'll we'll try this. We'll have we'll do, but they were qualified to do it. They should have been able to do it, but I didn't bring out in them that part of their personality. I brought out the the creative part, the part that was unfulfilled. Right, because you know, you 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 enabled them to un, unleash the creative part, which probably is one of your super yes. skills is to get people to perform at a creative level that they didn't think it was possible. So if that is one of your super skills, then we would look at this from a leadership perspective on well, who's the first person that we would have to bring in to offset that? And it probably would be somebody who does operations and who is the who is a different personality type, probably not as much fun as you are, but somebody who just absolutely loves, you know, maybe even a controller. So we, you know, so when, when I do this, if, if this comes up in the five star success blueprint and I see that there's a mismatch, I go in and when we do the team building piece, I look at you as a leader and I say, okay, you need to be here. This is where you shine. You know, the, the, the making people laugh, the, the humor. My God, do we all need humor right now, right? That's a phenomenal selling point right now. But I already now know that there are things in your leadership where you, you don't want to do the tough stuff. You don't want to write someone up. You don't want to give them a, a performance improvement plan. You, you don't right. want to be the boss. You want to be a friend. So... Who do we need to bring in then, or what structure do we need to create that will help you to, when you go down that road, to say, you know what, that's where we bring Susie in. So Susie, can you take over? Susie's going to explain exactly on what the deliverables on this are, and she'll go over this in the project management solve, what's expected from you. And if you have any creative questions, come to me. But the the delivery and the process, somebody else manages. So we built this, you know, that's why we have the five success blueprint. We built this not cookie cutter. We built this to help you, only you because it has to work for you. I cannot sell you anything that is against your belief system. I have to go in and look at you as the business owner and say, what does Hirsch really need? So I would free up more of your time so you could be more creative because I think, and funnier, because I think that's a huge attraction factor, huge differentiation factor. I could be factor. funnier. You could be even could funnier. Be funnier. Free me up so I could be funnier. Yeah. So, so DJ, by the way, I have a shtick. I went to, I did take a comedy class, and my shtick was the funny German. Oh, I also did a funny German. You did? Shtick. Yeah, I did. I pitched a, a concept to Birkenstock, although I want to hear about your about your, your funny German too, but I, I pitched a concept that was the Birkenbus, that was the idea was this very fanciful character would drive this bus, you know, like a VW bus around the country 
and stop at retailers and provide new Birkenstocks to people who brought in their Birks that were like 20 or 25 years old. And it was the Birkenbach. And this guy who would, who would, this character of mine, this Hans Schreig was the, the name. And he would go <laughs> on, the, on the bus and take the bus all over the country. We would stop and always very excited and, and very happy to, to see the, the, the sandals that they had over 20 years that last them forever and can reward them with, with, with good sandals. And we would always be on the, on the road. That was the the character. I would love that, and then and then you know add add, add some add some tie dye socks to it. That 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 would be even. I, yeah, I did, of course. I did see somebody with tie dye socks and Birkenstocks walking into REI yesterday, and I thought that was that was quite the look. It is a look. So what was your what was your funny no, my, German? My funny German was just this like completely dry person that you know wanted to be the funny German, only to find out that there are no funny Germans. Ah, okay. That was see we we took two two opposite tacts. I took the knowledge that Germans <laughs> the Germans can't really be that funny and made up one that was funny because that made it fantastic and fanciful and you took the idea that Germans have a hard time being funny and played it for laughs with you trying to be funny. Yes, I so, I, I I did and I did have a Canadian boyfriend at the time. And so that was even so, yeah. So it was yeah. all it was all the things that happened to a non-funny person that are hilarious to other people that that poor German can't really fathom. So why. what happened? So what? <laughs> give me an example. So one example was that I I you know I, I'm with this at the time with this Canadian man and it's my birthday, so he goes and gives me a gift certificate to a golf store. Well, I don't golf. And so, you know, it went down that kind of road of the things that people did that were very thoughtful, but made no sense to me as a German. It's like, why would you, why would you do that? Oh, that's right, because he liked golfing and he re-gifted the gift certificate. Right. Yes, because he had not right. thought about it at all. And how did you feel doing, uh, doing stand-up, like performing? I actually loved it. I loved it. I, oh, I, 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 I actually think I'm funny, but you know. But then again, let 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 the audience be the judge of it. But it was something that I wanted to do because I speak a lot, and you cannot just hammer down facts in an audience. You have to take them. You have to break the tension with laughter. You know, as a good speaker, you make people cry, you make people laugh, you take them on a journey, and I wanted to be able to do that. Absolutely. I, I think that that's, that's the, you know, in stand-up comedy, hopefully the humor, the irony, the spin, and a little bit of distance dilutes the, the truth with a breathing, with enough of an exhale that you can then take the truth away from it because it's just too hard other, otherwise. My dad was German. His family escaped Germany. And he was only four when they when they left. But his ear for dialects, his his comedy timing, and all of that stuff was so impactful on on me, you know. And I think that, and that's definitely where I got it. My mom could not tell a joke; she would tell all the details of the joke. She would say, "Oh, you did." Tell the joke about she say my father. Tell the joke about the 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 guy who the old guy and he can't remember where he lives and then the, he does the thing and then it does a, oh no the thing. and it's like that's that's her way of telling a joke. But a great audience, a great audience, you know. So, but I maybe maybe there's something to the idea of using using. I mean, there are people who do this, but who who teach corporate people how to how to be funny. Well, I mean, but, uh, that's my point. That's what I, that's the first thing I, I, uh, that came to mind is the idea of an unapologetic value proposition is to mm -hmm. take what you love, what you're passionate about, what sets you apart. And instead of apologizing for it, making it the centerpiece of everything. I mean, how many times have we been hearing about people that are in the branding world that are, in corporate America, and it is so bloody dense that you just want to go in and 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 you know do something funny to just like come on guys <laughs> you know we 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 all we're all just people here, but to teach people yeah. how to 
use humor, curiosity, humor in leadership. Who has ever talked about that? Yeah. So, you know, that's where I would go. And I'd say, well, if we were to come up with that idea, what would that look like? How would we implement that? Because if, if, if everything is about humor with you, then that has to be the centerpiece of everything. Then writing is not the centerpiece. Right. Humor is the centerpiece. Humor is. Mm-hmm. Humor is. And, and on a practical level, we, we don't want to limit ourselves by putting ourselves in a box. So some people like me would say, okay, I don't want to say I'm a humorist or a satirist or a comedy writer, but that is, that is very central, you know, because then I, then I might not get the other gigs that I want that are, that are, you know, more touchy feely stuff, warm, fuzzy stuff, you know, typical corporate stuff. But but you're right. The, the comedy could be, should, be, should be central. Well, you have to look at it from this perspective. If you were the top dog in the field, wouldn't you be making more money and working less? Sure. Isn't that what you want? Work less and make more well, money so you can, you can be funnier and do more things that are, that are entertaining to you? It doesn't mean that you cannot do that. You know, we, here's an idea. And I'm just going to throw it. So I had this with a photographer and he had, he had, he was quirky, right? And so we didn't use the word quirky, uh, funny. I came up with the word quirky. Unfortunately, never used that branding, which I think was a huge mistake. And I said, we can come up with a quirky scale and we can say on a scale one to 10, how quirky you want these images. Do you want a full 10 or do you want a one, right? With just, just a little bit of, of that in it. You could do the same thing, right? Is that you can say, well, we have a funny scale and so, or a humor scale. We can go 10, which is outrageous, or we can go three to four, just enough for people to have a little chuckle, right? Because that's, that's powerful. And if somebody says, I don't want zero, well, then they don't, they don't get any, but then they're missing out on the best part that makes you unique. Why, why would I want to work with you? If you're funny, why would I give you the sappy stuff? Right. I want to give you the funny stuff. That's the curse. The curse is being good at too many things. And I I don't say that facetiously. I mean, like, being able to do a lot of different things can be a form of a curse. Because you're right. What ends up happening is you dilute your brand. And then you're doing all the things you can do. But you're spreading it out over many more hours and much less money than you than you could if you were the, the top the top dog. But now I'm obsessed with with this idea and I think we should create a mastermind for corporate executives with the toughest job and and call it how to fire funny. And the idea is they have to they're gonna have to fire people, they're gonna have to let people go, but the challenge will be to teach them how to do it in a way that makes the person they're they're firing see some humor and some hope. Of course, there's pathos and there's humanity in it. There's none of it is ever good. Comedy doesn't work without humanity um, and and empathy. That's what a lot of people don't get is that they think that that insult comics are really insulting, when in fact good insult comics aren't really insulting. They're really empathizing. But that's that's a different. Well, that's part that that would be that would be part of what you would be teaching then. Yes, but but let's not give it all away here. No, but but you know, let's just lay this out for the audience and what we just did, so 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 that there is um, an understanding of of how this process works, right? So I'm a strategist. So what I did is I was listening to you and I was hearing some of the things that are coming through. I look at your brand. You know, it's all about being funny. You lit up when, when I said I have a shtick of being the funny German. I'm really not that funny in the comedy. You know, I didn't do enough. You were polite enough to not tell me that, which I appreciate. And, and, but, but it showed me where the passion really was. And so as a business strategist, as somebody who looks for things I haven't heard before, to say, here's somebody who works in corporate America or with corporate America who can add funny, well, what can we what can we do to add funny? And the minute I gave you the idea, add funny to corporate, 
your intuition already kicked in and came up and filled in the blanks. Oh, what we also could do would be, that's how you build systems, is that, you know, I listen to the key, find the button to push, then the puzzle pieces appear, and then all we have to do is pull it out and put it together. And that's what just happened. So just so we, we, we've outlined this for the audience yes. to see right. what just happened. And this is what you do with clients. All the time. Love it. This is what you do. But they're not as funny. It's not always about... Oh, God, for nobody's as funny as you are. No. Thank you. Well, that's not true. There's, 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 there's a few. No, but, I mean, I work but, with people that, you know, I've helped somebody to build a framework for uh, the use of ethical AI in search engines and in, in search results, which was unbelievable. I can truthfully tell you about... Half of the time, I had no idea what she was talking about, but because it, you know, it's data science. But I was so fascinated by the idea, and because I didn't know all the lingo, lingo, I was able to help her articulate it in a way anybody would understand it, right? Because she 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 wanted right. to go off in the data science world, and I just helped somebody put a whole a system together that they want to teach to corporate America, Silicon Valley, Google, Facebook, change.org, all these like crazy, crazy organizations, helping them to improve leadership by helping them to sell ideas, you know, because the, the communication is always stuck between organizations. So I, I love this. This is easy. This is, this is Hearing the ideas and helping land planes is amazing. And that's what lights, what lights you up. That's where, where you just feel naturally at ease. Yes. And so how are you applying this next? Well, so I'm in, I'm in the process of launching a mastermind about this. And the mastermind is a 12-week mastermind where I am taking now this process because I think the one thing I want to add to it is the power of the group. Because um, sometimes, you know, when you have other people, if, if you have 12 people that are listening, now you have 12 other inputs as well. So it's not just me, but that, that way the idea can be tested like in real time. And, uh, and so I'm building that right now. That's going to launch in, in, I think the launch date I'm going to set for August because my daughter's getting married in July. I probably should not do this before she gets, thank you, before she gets married. And, and really helping people that are in a place where they want to articulate clearly what they do, find that sweet spot, take that overwhelm and that jumbo mumbo stuff that comes out of their mouth out of it and, and talk about it in a simple way that everybody understands what you do. That's my target audience. Well, that's going to be pretty amazing. I mean, if enough people see what you did here today, then that'll, that'll help you know, I think give the give the mastermind a little a little boost, but that's exciting, exciting stuff. And then before I forget, so the women's code, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so the women's code I founded after I sold my business to Bill Gates, I was hired and asked to run their global entertainment division, which I did for about another two years. I thought that was a really terrible thing because I felt that I saw firsthand on the difference in how men and women are being treated in a corporate setting. I looked at the structure that was built by white men for white men and works great for white men. Actually, it's not even working for white men anymore either. Certainly not the next generation. And I saw that men have a code. And it was so obvious on how they did that. And then women couldn't figure out on why they would come on Monday morning into the office ready to talk to the boss who just cut the deal with somebody else on Saturday while golfing with someone else. And they didn't even, they didn't even know that, 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 that they should have been there or done that or they don't even know what happened. And so I set up the women's code because the number one problem women are having and I'm going to be very open and honest about this, is that women don't know how to deal with other women. Certainly not in the 20s and 30s. It starts to shift around 40s. But the entire society is laid out catfight, you know, take each other down instead of lift each yeah. other up. And women take each other out as serious contenders without men 
ever even having to do anything about it. So if a man can manipulate women to keep going down that road because it eliminates 50% of the competition, you think they wouldn't do that? Of course they do that. They do it every day, all day. So I created the Women's Code to teach women, and I'll be happy to send you the book, Hirsch, Happy Woman, Happy World, where I teach women on how to, to say it bluntly, not be a bee, you know, be be a, a woman that has ethics and standards and understands this collaboration instead of competition, knows how to lead and wants to lift other women up because there's enough for everybody. Amazing. Well, you know, I look forward to reading the book. I, it's, it, 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 one of the good things about this show is that I was not a huge reader of nonfiction, of, you know, self-actualization books and, so, and personal development books, but obviously doing a show you start you reading the the books of the guests and you're reading and you're reading up and then you become curious and then you want to you know and now i i just devour this stuff when i can when it's when it's something i'm excited about so i really look forward to getting that and also sharing it with my uh, with my wife and my daughters well thank you Beata, for for being on i mean this is this has been wonderful so much fun you are funny i don't i don't think we need to qualify funny that's why comedy is a dangerous <laughs> word. I don't even. I didn't say the the truth. The truth tastes comedic. It's like funny is. It's all relative to to yes. to the to our personalities. But you are certainly a pleasure to talk to and very very engaging and and fun uh, to converse with. And I love what you do. And I I have tremendous uh, regard for your ability to land those planes because. Nothing happens if that doesn't happen. Everything stalls. All the great ideas just go into a void if somebody doesn't guide that plane down, you know, onto the runway. Yes, 100%. It's all about if you're the best kept secret, you're not making the impact you came here to do. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you, Beata Shalev, for being on our show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. <laughs>